entire passage again like we did last week. But I want to kind of break a couple of these verses down a little bit, give you some more thoughts along with it now that we've already kind of looked at the, the whole idea together, uh, and just talk about a few of these things. So uh, the second point tonight, or the, just to kind of, the first point is the necessary introduction. The second point is that true faith is active faith. And that's exactly, I believe, what James is trying to get across, not just in this passage, but, but as one of the themes throughout the entire book of James. True faith is active faith. Now, what, what, um, this is a question for you to answer, all right? What, what is a, another one of the main themes of the book of James? Do you remember? Andrew? Yeah, spiritual maturity, bringing us to maturity as Christians. Very good. That perfection that he's talking about uh, is not to be sinless. It's to be mature as a Christian, and that's, what we, that's the direction that we should all be moving. That's what we should all be trying to get to. So very good. So the first thing I want you to, to see is this, and we're going to look right there in verse number 14, but it's salvation can be seen. The whole idea is that faith without works is dead, right? That's, that's true faith is active faith. That's the idea. But he says in James chapter 2 and verse 14, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? See, what, what James is saying here is pay just as much attention to what a man is or does as what a man says, right? You can say all you want to that you believe, but how do you prove that? He, though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? So if a person says he is saved, but he has no evidence of that in his daily life, then he's deceived. Uh, some people see James as a, as a champion of works against Paul. Paul stood for salvation by faith alone. And, and honestly, and, and by the way, this is something that we've, we've made this distinction many times before. Uh, Baptists are not Protestants. We were never part of the Protestant movement. Uh, the, within the Catholic Church, those that came out would be Martin Luther and, and uh, John Calvin and a lot of those guys. They were Protestants. They were protesting what the Catholic Church was doing from the inside. They kept a lot of what the Catholic Church was in their doctrine and everything. They were protesting what the Catholic Church was doing, uh, but they were, they were trying to, they, they wanted to stay Catholic. They were just protesting what the Catholic Church was doing. So they became Protestants. Baptists were never part of that. In fact, we got, the Baptists were persecuted by the Protestants. Uh, Martin Luther types, and I'm not saying Martin Luther himself, but many that were part of his denomination and a lot of the others that were like him did not like the Baptists. Uh, in fact, they gave them the term Anabaptist, rebaptizers, as a, uh, as a kind of a slam on them for, for who they were and what they taught and preached. You've already been baptized once by the Catholic Church. Why do you need to be rebaptized, you Anabaptist? And, and, and honestly, that's the way they looked at it. But Martin Luther, uh, his whole stand based on the statement from Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. Uh, he thought that the epistle of James, he said it, he said it was a veritable epistle of straw. He misunderstood James's emphasis on works. He completely misunderstood what he was talking about. The pendulum was being swung away from Judaism. You've got to remember the time that this was taking place. Right? This is first century Christianity. This, Jesus is already gone, but he hasn't been gone that long. The church at Jerusalem has been established, and the pendulum is being swung away from Judaism. So the Jews placed all the emphasis on works, right? the, the Pharisees in particular, and the Sadducees and others. They put all that emphasis on do, 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 on this rigid observance of the rites and the rules of religion. And some Christians went along with all of that. 
I mean, that's, look, look, look what happened in Acts chapter 15. James and the apostles have to get together to say, all right, let's figure this out. How much of Judaism do we take and how much of Christianity is part of that and, and back and forth? And they finally came to that consensus. And James, as the pastor, said, all right, great points, everybody. Here's, here's, the, here's what I'm ruling on that, basically. But others went to the other extreme, insisting that there ought to be no works at all. And that essentially turned liberty into a license to sin, right? Your works don't matter. You're saved only by faith. And, and, and if you're saved only by faith, then you can live your life however you want to. That's why Paul came across in Romans and said, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Yes, you have that freedom, but that freedom does not give you the right to sin. It keeps you from sinning, essentially. And so there was a pendulum swing on both sides. It's swinging away from Judaism and works, but some people took that pendulum all the way to the other side and said, well, works don't matter at all. What James is doing here is bringing things back into a balance. Yes, it's all faith, but your works matter at the same time. James uses the concept of, of righteousness and justification in the sense of, of actual, measurable, perceivable goodness. The exact way, by the way, that Jesus used it in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, sorry, James is not talking about the imputed righteousness that Paul was talking about. James had a practical, not a theological application in mind. When it came to Abraham, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit, but he talks, he gives, he gives uh, four or five verses about Abraham. But, but when it came to Abraham, he wasn't discussing the question of how he was set right with God or how faith was reckoned as righteousness. James was concerned with it as proof that Abraham, when he was put to the test, lived up to his faith. That's, and that's the difference. Biblical salvation. In fact, turn over to Matthew chapter 7. I have a few verses that I want to read to you kind of all in a row, and so turn to as many of these as you can here. Because biblical salvation is to be born again. Right? There's no question about that. Uh, Jesus made that very clear. And, and then after you're born again, you're sealed with the indwelling Holy Spirit, and that results in a dramatic change in your life. That theme runs throughout the entire New Testament. Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 20, Jesus said, Wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them. What are their fruits? It's their works. It's the way they're living their life. Right? That's how you'll know if someone's a Christian. And in this sense, he's talking about false teachers. That's how you're going to know if they're a false teacher or not. Look at the fruit. Look how they live their life. Look at their works. Right? Here's, here's a few more. John chapter 8 and verse 31. John chapter 8, I'll give you a second to get there. I, I would like you to turn to as many of these as you can. I know it's, uh, it's a lot of turning, but it'll help you stay awake too. It's been a long day. John chapter 8 and verse number 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Well, that sounds like works, doesn't it? Well, it is works. If you've been saved by grace through faith, then your works are going to follow. You will prove that you are a disciple of Christ by the way that you live your life after that. A couple pages over in John chapter 10 and verse 27. John chapter 10 and verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. That's works, right? A sheep could hear the shepherd's voice 
And the shepherd could know him. If he's not following him, how does anybody else know that that sheep belongs to that shepherd? They have to follow to prove that they belong to that shepherd. They have to do something to, to, do, to, to follow along with that. And again, doesn't change the fact that he belongs to that shepherd, right? But how do you prove that to other people? How does anybody else know that that sheep belongs to the shepherd? He hears the voice and he follows him. Here's another one in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And, and to me, this is one of the sh- strongest passages in the Bible that, um, that shows us that there ought to be a change after you're saved. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. This idea of repentance being just a change from belief, from from unbelief to belief, completely goes against this idea. If you are in Christ, you are a new creature, what are the old things that are passing away? Your old lifestyle. It's the things you used to do before you got saved. It's 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 the partying and everything else that you used to do before you came to know Jesus Christ. Or even if you didn't live that lifestyle, it's the the lying and cheating and stealing and everything else you did as a kid even, right? All of those things are passed away. Everything has become new. There ought to be a change in you. There ought to be something different about you. Here's a couple more. Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, and this is another one that's a very strong indication that there ought to be a change in your life after you get saved. By the way, all of these verses, this is not, a, this is not a, uh, a message on repentance tonight, but all of these verses are, are great um, proof texts, if you will, that repentance is in, the, is in the Bible and is absolutely necessary for salvation. Titus chapter 1 and verse 16, they profess that they know God. Well, doesn't that mean that they're saved? They profess that they know God, but... In works, they deny him being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. Profess all you want to that you know God. If your works don't back that up, then it doesn't matter if you say you know him or not. The only thing that we have to judge whether you're saved or not is the way that you live your life. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. One more. Turn over to 1 John chapter 2. This is, this is another one. That, that is just about as strong a proof text as you can ask for to show that repentance is more than just a change of mind from unbelief to belief. 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 3. And hereby we do know that we know him. Oh, so here is the proof then. Here's the, here's the test. How do we know if we know him or not? Hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Oh, that's a work salvation. It's not a work salvation. You're not saved by your works, but when you get saved, your works will change. And if there is no change in your works, then I doubt that there's a change in your status before God. If we know him, we will keep his commandments. Verse 4, he that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So to, to repeat what I've said before, that's what repentance is all about. We don't change to be saved, but we change because we have been saved. So somebody that genuinely is saved is going to change, and you're going to see that change. True faith, uh, uh, salvation can be seen. Number two, back in James chapter two, true faith is practical and giving. And he says this in, in verse number 15, and remember what we're talking about, faith without works 
is dead, now he brings up an idea of those works. True faith is practical and it's giving. James chapter 1, verse number 15. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? doesn't do any good to say, oh, we're thinking about you. I know, you're, I know you don't have any clothes and you're, you're starving, but we're thinking about you. You just go ahead and go in peace. That doesn't do anything, right? So to speak of love without doing deeds of love is as empty as to speak of having faith without a changed life, right? Dead or empty faith does not help anybody. So we're saying that true faith is practical in giving. It, it doesn't help the one professing to have it, because it, 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 it must change him to actually help him, right? It doesn't help the one who's in need. Words don't meet physical needs. Uh, it doesn't help the one watching all of this. He doesn't see any evidence of real faith. It doesn't help God. It doesn't advance the cause of Christ. So it doesn't help anybody to say that you're going to do these things or to say that you have faith uh, without the works that come along with it. There comes a point. Uh, in, fact, in fact, turn over to Exodus chapter 14. There comes a point when our faith and our words need to be put into action. I'm reminded of Moses when he got to the Red Sea. The Red Sea was in front of him. The Egyptian army was behind him. He didn't know what he was going to do. He was standing there wringing his hands over the situation, and God said this in Exodus chapter 14 and verse 15. Wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel that they go forward. What are you, what are you asking me about it for? You know what to do. I've already told you. Go forward. Go do something about it. Right? Uh, another example of that is found in Joshua chapter 7. The same thing happened with Joshua at Ai. Remember what happened at Ai? They didn't consult God first. They said, this is a tiny little place. Let's just go up here and take it, not realizing that there was sin in the camp. They went up there. 26 men were killed. They lost the battle. They, they were sent out with their tails tucked in between their legs, ashamed. And Joshua falls down on his face before God and starts begging God and, and bemoaning and and, and lamenting the situation, and God broke right into his prayers in Joshua chapter 7 and verse 10. The Lord said unto Joshua, Get thee up. Wherefore liest thou thus upon thy face? Israel hath sinned. It was time for action, not just prayer, and I'm certainly not taking away from prayer. Prayer is absolutely necessary, and you better not go into the action unless you've prayed, and that's a perfect example of, of exactly what Joshua did and why he was in the situation that he was in. So I'm not that prayer is not important, but sometimes it's time to get up off your knees and go do something with what you're praying about, right? The time comes when God expects us to do something about the things that cry out for action. How many people pray about the needs of others, and by the time they say amen, they've already forgotten about all of those needs? Maybe in the midst of praying about other people's needs, God's expecting you to answer the needs of those people who, who you're praying for, right? That's active faith. God, help these people, help them, and you don't have any idea in your mind of helping those people? Sometimes it's time to get up off your knees and go do something about the things you're praying about. God wants his people to be ready to distribute, willing to communicate. That's what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 18. And you don't take the time to turn over there, but in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, he says, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto those who are of the household of faith. But as we have opportunity, let us do good unto all men. That's faith in action. James asks at the end of that verse, what doth it profit? Profit means advantage or, or, or accumulated benefit. Who knows what actions or testimonies gradually heap up conviction on somebody's soul 
that will eventually lead them to Jesus Christ because you went out and did something rather than just praying about it or talking about it. And that's what James is saying. What does it profit if you do is sit there and talk about it? Go do something about it. Put your faith into action. Number three, back in James chapter two. Bottom line is that faith and works go hand in hand. And again, we're going to see this even again after this because James just keeps saying the same thing in different ways. Uh, faith and works go hand in hand. Uh, James chapter 2, verse number 17. Even so, faith, if it hath not worked, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Verse 20. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. He's just saying it in the same way. He's trying to get a point across here. Faith does not come by itself. It brings active work with it. That's what James is trying to say. Paul warns against dead works. We've already discovered that as we look through those different passages. And James warns against dead faith. Paul warns against dead works. James is warning against dead faith. What James deplores, and that's obvious because he says, Oh, vain man. What he deplores is the kind of faith that only gives intellectual assent to various doctrines of the Bible and who, you know, who claims to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who went about doing good but does not, um, does, does not do any of that himself. He's saying that all some people do is say that they have faith with nothing tangible to back it up. He says, show me thy faith without thy works and I will show thee my faith by my works. In other words, I can show you by what I do that my faith is real. That's what, he, that's what he means when he says that. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. I'll show you by the way that I'm living my life that my faith is real. Let me give you a side note here. Uh, he mentions dead several times in these passages, right? Faith without works is dead. Uh, verse 26, for as the body without the spirit is dead. Uh, not, he, literally it means a corpse, that's what dead means. But not, not all are dead who appear dead to you and I. This is, a, this is just a little side note. In other words, just because you and I can't see their works does not mean they're not regenerated. Um, we are not the ultimate judge. Right now, we're told many times that we are to judge. What are we judging? We have to judge their works, right? We have to judge their fruit. We have to judge those things. Um, their faith might be newborn. They're weak. It's not exerted itself very much. Uh, their faith may be, may be uh, pinned into a corner by carnality or worldliness, and they may be fighting a battle that we don't know anything about, and they're trying to win that battle. They just haven't been able to win it yet. Um, my father-in-law was a pastor. A, uh, he was a tremendous pastor for 45 years. He smoked for three years after he got saved. He knew it was wrong. He was trying to quit. He, couldn't, he, could, he was fighting it. He couldn't, he couldn't quit. And finally, one day, he got the victory over that. Somebody looking at him might say, he didn't get saved. He's still smoking three years after he got saved. That's not, that's not a genuine conversion. The Bible doesn't say you have to be sinless in order to be saved, right? It means you're a new creature. And he was fighting a battle that, that somebody looking at it from the outside had no idea that he was fighting, right? So for us to look at it from the outside and say, oh, you're not regenerated. You're still doing this and this and this does not, does not always mean that we know what we're talking about. Now, all we can do is judge them by those works. I, I don't think I would say that uh, somebody that's still living in a lifestyle that's not, you know, that doesn't line up with the Word of God or whatever else, um, 
We're not going to baptize them and make them a member of the church, right? They need to get those things right. They need to get those things right with God, but it does not mean that they're not saved. It does not mean that they're unregenerated. So we can't see the heart. And, and of what we can see, the works and the activity and everything on the outside, we can only see partially and imperfectly. We're not God. Eventually, there should be some evidence of that salvation, but it takes time. We have to be patient with people. We have to let them grow the same way that somebody is patient with you and let you grow, right? And, and honestly, even you, no matter how long you've been saved, you're not perfect. How come? Haven't you been saved long enough to be perfect? You ought to have everything handled by now. Oh, you don't. So we ought to be the same way with everybody else. Now, their works ought to back up. If there is no evidence of it, they have no desire to be in church, they have no desire to live for the Lord, then I would question somebody's salvation. Um, I wouldn't baptize somebody that didn't have at least a little bit of an evidence of salvation. Uh, the whole point of baptizing is not to just say, I believe in Jesus. Right? The whole point of baptism is to say, I'm saved, I'm changed, my life is different, and I want everybody to know it. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new. So, uh, I believe it's necessary and important to make sure that we can see some fruit before we declare them saved, if we even have to do that, before we baptize them, before they are added to the church and everything else. Um, there will be an outward evidence of that inward transformation, but we have to give people time. Again, faith is, is it's an unseen spiritual commodity. All we can see are the effects, right? It's just like the wind. You can't see where the wind's coming from. You can't see where the wind's going to, but you can see the effects of it. Right? Usually it happens when you're trying to blow leaves in one direction and it's blowing the opposite direction. That's when you see the effects of the wind. Uh, but that's, that's the same way that it is with this. What visible proof is there of your Christianity? Is there proof in your actions? Is there proof in your activity? Is there proof in your works? That's the only way that we can prove whether we actually have faith or not because nobody can open your heart and see your faith. Right? It's the only way you can prove that faith is by your works. So there are those that are with you the most, your coworkers, your spouse, your children, your family, your friends, they have to see evidence of your faith to believe that your faith is alive and real and genuine. Number four, back in James chapter two, professing but dead faith is a demonic faith. And, and, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because we talked about it last week, but in James chapter two and verse number 19, it says, thou believest that there's one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? The devils, the devils are angels who followed Satan in his rebellion, right? They were in heaven at one point. They know that God exists. They know that heaven exists. They've seen it. They, they willfully followed the devil in his rebellion. And the devils are not atheists. They're not skeptics. So you say you believe. That's what he's saying. So what? The, de the demons believe. And they tremble because they know that there's a coming judgment, and they know that they're going to be part of it. They believe, but their works are abominable. They certainly don't show that they believe in Jesus Christ the way that, that, uh, it, the, uh, that we believe in Jesus Christ by faith for salvation. So they obviously have no works backing up their belief. It's mental knowledge. It's mental assent. And that's why it's so important when we're sharing the gospel with somebody that it's not just a matter of getting somebody to pray a prayer so we can declare them saved and they're on their way to heaven. It's not just trying to get somebody to say, do you want to go to heaven? Yes, I want to go to heaven. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes, I believe in Jesus. Do you believe he died on the cross? Yes, I believe he died on the cross. Great, pray this prayer. Where are you going to go if you die today? I'd go to heaven. How do you know? Jesus died on the cross for me. That's not salvation, right? Salvation is, is repentance. 
it's not just a mental assent to the idea that there was a Jesus and he died on the cross. It is, I'm a sinner and I deserve to spend an eternity in hell. And unless the blood of Jesus Christ covers my sins, then I'm going to spend an eternity in that place. Somebody has to cover for me. Somebody, I have to be justified by somebody because I can't do it myself. And until you come to that realization, it's just mental assent. The devils believe and tremble, the Bible says. So James already said that faith without works is dead, but here he's kind of given an interrogation of sorts. God said it. Did you get it? He says, but wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? There's a question mark at the end of that sentence. God said it. Did you get it? You understand what he's saying? That's what James is saying here. Number five, and we have two examples of an active evidentiary faith. I don't know another way to say that. evidentiary is just there's evidence of your faith. And the first one we have is Abraham in offering Isaac. James chapter 2, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac, his son, upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then, how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. So, salvation is by imputation. And I know that's a big word, but imputation just means to put something on someone else's account. Our sin was imputed unto Jesus Christ's account, and his righteousness was imputed to me. I don't deserve his righteousness, but he took his righteousness and he put that on my account. I didn't deserve for him to take my sin, but he took my sin and put it on his account. So, and, and, and when it says Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, that's, that's a quote from Genesis chapter 15 and verse number 6. In our natural state, we're sinners before God and we're bankrupt of true righteousness. We don't have any righteousness of our own. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. All our righteousnesses, it says, are as filthy rags. So we are completely bankrupt of righteousness. We have nothing in us that can get us to heaven. When a sinner puts his trust in Jesus Christ, God imputes to him the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. What a concept. What an idea that is. What an amazing thing that is. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 is, is a, a definition of imputation, if you will. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. If you want a definition of imputation, that's it. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's the exact meaning of justification. The believer is declared righteous by God on the basis of what Jesus Christ did, on the basis of Jesus Christ's atonement. This is my opinion, but I believe that in order for the Abrahamic covenant to continue, to be, ta it, it, to be, to be taken up by the next generation, Isaac had to come to, to the same terms that Abraham came to, right? Um, he had to have just as much of a firm faith and belief in God that, that Abraham did, and as much of a firm belief in this covenant that was going to pass down as Abraham did, right? He never saw God personally. Isaac didn't. Now, Abraham did. Jacob did. But Isaac never saw God personally. So the visible evidence of Abraham's faith was all that Isaac had to look at. Or else why would he believe in it? He, he had little or no Bible. He didn't have some long history of, you know, uh, of being taught all of these things in the faith. 
and certainly not in a personal or familial way that eventually it was to be. Isaac took just as much ownership in God as Abraham did, but the only evidence he ever saw was Abraham's faith. So the fact that his faith was imputed unto him for righteousness, Abraham was called the friend of God. What a wonderful thing it is to be called God's friend. Jesus said in John chapter 15 and verse 13, those who do his will are his friends. And then later on in James chapter 4 and verse number 4, we'll see this later, James warns that those who love the world are the enemy of God. They're at enmity with God, he says. So uh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful concept here that, that Isaac, the, only, the only, only thing that made Isaac want Abraham's God was the visible aspect of Abraham's faith. That's it. And that's what he's talking about in here. The second, the second example is, is there in verse 25, Rahab in helping the spies of Israel. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. Rahab's a wonderful example of God's grace. She was a harlot in a pagan city of Jericho. Uh, but she believed the light that she had and that, that the idea of you know, Israel being the people of God, and they were coming to take over, and that was all she knew. And, and, and in fact, she got mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, and verse 31, by faith the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. She got, she got mentioned in the, in the great chapter of faith because of her faith. What an amazing thing that is. If she really believed God and really believed in God and that the nation of Israel... Uh, was soon to overthrow her own nation on, on God's commands, then she would have helped the spies, right? Well, guess what? She did. And she proved her faith. So when it says Rahab the harlot was justified by works, it's not saying that, that her works saved her. It's saying that she proved her faith by her works. She married a Jewish man named Salmon, they had a son named Boaz. Boaz, by the way, also married a converted pagan girl by the name of Ruth, and they had a child named Obed. And then Obed had a child named Jesse, and Jesse had a child named David. So here you have uh, the converted pagan harlot was a great-grandmother of David who was in the line of Jesus Christ. What an amazing thing. And then verse 26, the last thing we'll look at tonight in this passage is the emphatic conclusion and again, just saying the same thing that he's, always, that, that he's been saying all along and just in a different and more emphatic way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. I was reading in a, in a commentary. One of my favorite commentators, by the way, if, if you want a good commentary set. Now, I've, I, I've, I've, I can't find it online anywhere other than through some Bible software, um, and it costs it's, it's a couple hundred dollars for it, but a great, great commentary set. I have the whole set in books. Um, John Phillips is, is probably my favorite commentator. He's, uh, he, he's, he's dead, but he died, I think, only about uh, five, six years ago, something like that. And um, uh, everything that he did was, was based on the King James Version, and that's what makes it really helpful because that's what I do. Uh, but he has a lot of really good illustrations and everything else. If you're looking for a really good, especially if you're reading in a book, and um, you maybe couldn't buy the whole set at one time, but if you're reading a book uh, through the Bible and trying to study that out, maybe just get one at a time until you get them all. Great, great commentary set. But he says this, James sets before us a dead body and a dead belief. 
A corpse, after all, is only a corpse once. The spirit has departed. All that is left is dead clay. You can cleanse that corpse, clothe it, and compose it in a coffin. You can curse it, command it, or caress it. There is no response at all from the corpse. It has no soul or spirit. We write Ichabod across it. The glory has departed. James makes the obvious application. Faith without works is dead. The Spirit of God is not in that kind of faith. That's not a belief that behaves. The sooner it's buried, the better. I think it's a great summary of the entire passage, honestly. I mean, that's, that's exactly what he's talking about. A true faith will be an active faith. It's not a faith for salvation. It's a faith to show that you have been saved, right? It'll be alive and well. It will prove to men that it's genuine. So as we close, the, the, the question that I want to put forth to you tonight is this. Will our children see clearly and plainly the evidence of our faith? Will our extended family clearly and plainly see the evidence of our faith? Will your friends and coworkers and your neighbors clearly see the evidence of your faith? If it's real and if it's genuine, they will. There will be something different about you. Active faith, good works, it's not for salvation, but it certainly will be because of it. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. A body with no spirit has no life. And the same thing is true. Uh, a a, a, a uh, faith that has no life is dead also. And that's, that's what, a, what, a great, what, a, what a great reminder um, and a, what a great definition of what repentance in the Bible is all about. We don't get saved by our works but we certainly should have works to prove that we are saved. That's the only thing that we can look at on the outside to see if somebody's saved or not. Can't see it. Can't see somebody's faith. All you can see is the evidence of it. And the evidence of that faith ought to be strong enough that somebody can look at you and say, he is showing his faith by his works. That's what this whole passage is about. We'll move into James chapter 3 next week. Oh, he starts a whole in there about the tongue and what a, what a, what a uh, section that is, what a passage that is. But we'll talk about that some more. We'll get back together next week, all right? Let's pray, and we'll be done. Father, we love you. Give me thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you for an opportunity we have to be here tonight. Thank you again for just the way that you lay these things out so plainly and so clearly for us in the Word of God. Thank you again for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen.